from New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. On this episode of the show, as we prepare to review Anna Lily Amirpour's The Bad Batch, Allison and I, and all the other non-functioning members of society, are heading out to the desert to start a rave cult. Because, let's be honest, that's starting to sound like as welcoming a plan for the future as anything else anyone's got going on these days. Seriously, all glory to the dream. Uh, Inspired by The Bad Batch, we were going to dedicate this episode to cinematic explorations of that greatest of taboos and handiest of allegories. Anthophagy, the eating of the long pig, the consumption of other humans. And then, we did! Uh, yes, so brace yourself. Thundercrack. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Uh, brace yourself for some cannibalism wrecks that you can rent or stream at home right now. Uh, after this, our listener's choice review of The Bad Batch. The chaos of this world is vast and unknowable. We like to think we can understand it. But we can't. As you know by now, on every episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units, we let you tell us what we should discuss as our main review by choosing from one of three options in an online poll. This time around, your choices were Anna Lily Amapora's Dystopian The Bad Batch on Netflix, Bertrand Bonello's terrorist attack drama Nocturama, also on Netflix, and Ben Young's abduction thriller Hounds of Love on Hulu. And actually, The Bad Batch and Nocturama kept neck and neck right up to the end when The Bad Batch pulled ahead for the win. The Bad Batch is the second film from Amapur, whose debut was 2014's A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Uh, That was, you know, your standard black and white film set in an Iranian ghost town where a lonely, chador-wearing vampire preys upon abusive men, falls in love with a moody but extremely handsome guy. Uh, The Bad Batch is similarly indescribable. It is a dystopian movie taking place in this fenced-in stretch of desert. The U.S. seems to have seceded in order to have a place to dump all unwanted citizens, among them criminals and the undocumented. Uh, We don't know what Arlen, the main character played by Suki Waterhouse, did to get labeled and tattooed as one of the Bad Batch. But when the film starts, that's where she's getting dumped on the other side of the fence, where she almost immediately has a run-in with some of the nastier denizens of the area. Cannibals who kidnap her and amputate one of her arms and one of her legs uh, as a first course (laughs) to the memorable sounds of Ace of Base. Mm. Uh, most of the people in the area seem to have affiliated themselves with one of two camps. Either you're part of this cannibal bodybuilder community, uh, which is the case for Jason Momoa, one of the other main characters, this character, who doesn't have a name, but I think is, has a tattoo that says Miami, Miami Man. Man. Yeah. Uh, I've got the same tattoo, so you can call me that. Uh, anytime. Uh, and then you, uh, either that or you live in a town called Comfort, where on the plus side, there's no eating of people. On the downside, you're part of a drug sales supported <laughs> cults run by Keanu Reeves as a character called the dream mm-hmm. who has a harem of gun toting pregnant women sure. and insists on nightly raves. 
No good choices, Matt. Mm. Everything bad. Mm. Uh, Matt, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night was an acclaimed breakout film. The Bad Batch has gotten a considerably more mixed reception. Do you see this as a case of a sophomore slump? Or is this one misunderstood? Well, you just used the phrase. I'm writing it down so I could repeat it. No good choices. Everything bad. That's my review, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> good night. Uh, I didn't like this movie. Uh, I was very disappointed by it. I was bored by a lot of it, frankly. And uh, yeah, I really, I, I, I strongly, strongly disliked it. Interesting. Uh, I, I, I can't remember the last time I have disliked a movie by a sort of respected up and coming filmmaker vetted by major festivals quite this much. I strongly disliked it. And I thought, let's start with the two leads. I thought were amongst the worst performances I have seen in uh, this caliber of film. Jason Momoa's Cuban accent as the Miami man <laughs> in this movie makes Al Pacino and Scarface look like a documentary. It is <laughs> horrific. And I, I, I mean, you could be, I guess, outraged that he is not Cuban, but just as on an objective level, he sounds ridiculous. And every time he spoke, I just like, I slapped my forehead. I was groaning. I was sigh. I just, I could not look at him as a character because he was just this big, ridiculous meathead Miami man talking in this ridiculous accent. And then uh, the main actress, Suki Waterhouse, I'm not sure if I've seen her in anything else. She's best known as a model. Okay. I, well, I knew that she was a model. I, lo I, I looked up after the movie on Wikipedia. Uh, it didn't surprise me to learn she was British because she also has a... It, she's only lucky that Jason Momoa is next to her doing that Cuban accent because her accent isn't that much better. Uh, it's only better in comparison. But I just thought the two of them combined were just completely bereft of any interest whatsoever. And, you know, I think the world is potentially interesting that she has created. And obviously there are a lot of real world parallels and allegories and, and such that we can look at and see that I think give the, the movie or could give the movie, if it was good, a certain cachet and relevance that would make it more interesting. But I just thought like what goes on in this world is so unbelievably boring and stupid and rambling and pointless that I by the end of it, I was just like, that was it. I watched all of that for that. I was I was kind of upset. No. Are you getting that vibe? Uh, yeah. Am I coming being through? Subtle? I Am appreciate I not... that you're not missing I... words. No, I'm not. Yeah, I will say this. Yeah. This movie is kind of a guilty pleasure for me. Oh, uh -huh. no. I, know, I think it is a total hot mess of a movie. Oh. But there, there's something about uh, Amapur's kind of general sensibility. There's this like almost like teen goth romanticism that I think is like in both of her movies. I don't know if you've seen A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. I did, but I don't remember it all that. I saw there it one this, time. Like, there's a the... reason I think like both of her main characters in both of those movies have sequences where they're like just in their rooms, mm -hmm. like uh, listening to music and mm -hmm. like putting up scrap photos on the wall and things like, and they're both like, you know, non, like non-standard. They're not teenage girls. They are a, a vampire and um, an unwilling amputee in sure. a dystopian world. But there's still this like, yeah, this like kind of like luxuriant teenageness to, to I think, like the some of these imagery that I do enjoy. I think that whenever anyone opens their mouth in this movie, yeah. 
It is a bad it's thing. It's bad. But no one talks for a really long time. I mean, time. that is true. There are long stretches <laughs> where it's pretty quiet and, right. the, and the visual storytelling isn't bad. I'll give it's you that. I think that. I, I think that any more so in this than even her last film. Her last film had a kind of Jim Jarmusch quality to totally. it. Totally. This one feels more like a music video. And I think that there's yeah, like... Yeah, or like Mad Max. I got a sure. real... Like it's I saw Mad streak. Max and it's wanted kinda to like, kind of homage kinda like it. It's like a Mad Max streak, but also it's like Mad Max by way of like, I don't know, Coachella. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little Harmony Corinne in yeah, there. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I think that it's just like when she kind of like lets like music carry scenes mm-hmm. and kind of like just turns up this kind of like lushness and just like kind of lush sensibility. I do appreciate that. I think that like, she has something there. Sure. That I don't think that this movie manages to do anything with in a sustained sense. Mm-hmm. But I, I do en- like I enjoyed like the totally ridiculous look that Jason Momoa has going on in this movie. I adored. I mean, the pants are kind of cool. I sort of liked his pants. High-waisted pants. pants. Yes. Like, like, like khaki dress pants. Yeah. They're like slacks probably from like a suit that has long since gone by the wayside. And then no shirt. No shirt. (laughs) Uh, has Miami man in old English letters tattooed across sure. his chest along, uh, alongside other tattoos. Yes. He is so buff that he looks like, almost physically impossible yeah he's like pain and gain he yes. looks like mark Wahlberg. he ate mark Wahlberg in pain <laughs> and gain basically and uh and then he wears like a a leather halter in which he has a hatchet sure yes because he's a cannibal he's a cannibal you spoiler know, alert you gotta you, you gotta, gotta have your tools yeah, exactly for <laughs> chopping people up but it is and then he wears sunglasses it and, is it, like, and, and what about the accent and then and then the accent i know every time he opens his mouth i just like <laughs> oh god it's just, it's so, I just don't know why, I, I feel like asking anyone to do that accent in general, I'm just like, you're asking so much of an actor. Right. And I just don't think that Jason Momoa is Why couldn't guy. he just have his normal accent? I never under, I don't, I, I, don't I get know. that, I get it's, that part of it is, yeah, right. his character is an immigrant. Yes. Have him be an immigrant from somewhere else. Right, I know. I, it's, it's such a big ask and he Cannot do it. No. Uh, and I mean, the same way, I think that you have uh, Suki Waterhouse, who is British, trying to do, I think, like what's supposed to be a kind of like working class Texas accent. It's like a Southern Belle. It sounds right. to me like she's trying to, it's, you know, because there is sort of a Western vibe here. And it, there is. she does kind of sound like a classical figure of like a, a of a John Ford Western. Sure. But then it's, she's just so kind but of bad. inert an actress. Also. Yeah. She's just, she's just not very present. Right. She just, she just I, mean, I think that's the thing is like, she looks like you understand why she was chosen for like standing still on a desert landscape. Right. Like, she has a striking, has a striking look. look. Yes. Uh, and she sort of fits the world visually, right. but she, she's just not a great actress. She's not. And like when so much of the movie requires you to want to just look at her, right. to like have her be charismatic without speaking. And to connect to her in some way, to, to feel something about this woman who's lost an arm and a leg. Right. But that's the thing is like there are lots of times in the movie where she makes a choice and you don't understand why because no. she doesn't ever, she never lets you inside her head. No. This character, uh, and I do think one of the best parts, the, the things this movie has to offer is that it dumps you into a scene that is so disturbing early yeah, on. The beginning is the best part. It is the best part. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that there there is something about that kind of shock of having this character who is this like like very traditionally pretty blonde girl. And the kind who you almost like uh, the fact that she's scooped up and immediately used as meat. Yeah. There's something very like subversive about that just in terms of 
expectations in a dystopian movie. Sure. Um, I don't find myself disagreeing with much of what you're saying. Sure. I just feel like you're pointing out all the decent things sort of in the background of all these scenes <laughs> oh, where in the foreground okay, are these so, terrible yeah, actors. Sure. And Beyond the terrible actors. And, and even a nothing, story, there's really not that much happens. that happens. I know. I think the thing for me, beyond even the fact that nothing much happens, because like her last movie I liked a lot and it was also just kind of drifty. Right. It was, uh, I felt like it was a better mood piece though. This to it was me a better was, mood piece. This, it just doesn't I think get the, there. One of the bigger problems of this movie is also that that it's it sets up a world in which all of these people are put out and like forced out into this world to uh, right. this landscape to survive for themselves mm-hmm. and yet you never really understand why some people get to go to comfort and why other right. people have to survive are, by eating are cannibals flesh. in the yes. in the wilderness yeah totally it, it, it they she has no interest in sort of explaining this world which you know that's a that's a thing you know that's viable you if you can pull that off in certain situations where the characters are really rich the story is really gripping but here the, the most interesting thing is the world which she then doesn't really fully tease out. So visually, it's a fascinating world. Oh, it has incredible visuals. Right. And like there's a scene where she's walking sort of down Main Street of Comfort and you're just seeing the different booths and like the economy of this place. And that's kind of interesting and fun. But that's about as much as we get of sort of understanding this place. Right. And, uh, you know, it sets up this kind of like, uh, I know that there there were some people who, it, like this was brought up, some people were disturbed by what they saw as the racial politics of this movie. Yeah. I think it's just too incoherent with, with regard to its racial 100%. politics to really even make sense, especially since it almost sets up something with regard to like who has to be a cannibal and who's in comfort in terms of certainly like the women in uh, Keanu Reeves's uh Building. Harem, yes, his harem of the dream inside me, yeah, literally. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then it doesn't really follow through on that. So, and then the kind of like when you, there's a reveal about how comfort works, it seems like it should be a darker bargain. Yeah, you know? it's not. It's not shocking at it's all. It's not shocking it's at all. Set up as like, this like gasp moment, and you're like, "Well, obviously, yeah." Isn't that how this like, would work? You're like, "Why wouldn't you still stay?" Right. <laughs> you know, like the, this movie kind of suggests that like being a cannibal is this horrible choice to make and yet it's still more honest than what is involved in being in comfort <laughs> but then you're like no I'm not eating so people sure. is horrible yes it's and it's portrayed so monstrously like, yeah it's not like it's disturbing yeah. detail right they don't it's not like they're like actually hear us out cannibalism not that bad that's not what this movie is about yeah yeah i uh i completely agree and i have to tell you it's it's this is not entirely the movie's fault but i feel like i'm getting a little sick of these like stunt casting things in these Mm. it seems like it's happening a lot lately and i don't know if it's because these movies are being like financed by like talent agencies and so they're connecting like their bigger name stars with up-and-coming directors and so you wind up with like a jim carrey in this movie basically unrecognizable unrecognizable as like this hermit who's sort of wandering through the desert does he have a line of dialogue? I mean, I don't think he ever talks. He, maybe he, right. He communicates with. Uh, he writes, writes and stuff. Yeah. He's he seems mute. But just the idea of like casting Jim Carrey as a mute hermit who's not funny, who doesn't really have anything to do. He sort of serves a minor plot purpose, but there's no reason for it to be Jim Carrey. And you're like, oh, that was Jim Carrey. I was looking up who the DJ was at uh, the rave. It was Diego Luna, right? Diego Luna, yes. that's an- And that's another one <laughs> where it's like, if you could, I mean, why bother casting these, I, I guess, for name value on trailers and in, on posters and stuff? It's like, I, I don't know. There's been a lot of movies lately where very talented people are in it for five minutes. And I'm getting a little sick of sort of being kind of having the uh, the rug pulled out from under you where you think you're going to see someone who you like. 
I, I you know, and Jim Carrey could be good in this world. He sort of fits this world, but you got to give him something to do. That I, I again, it's it's not that his part is necessarily bad, but it's just like why? Why bother? Why did he bother? I guess he liked her last movie. I don't. I don't know. That's. I mean, that's a general feeling I get. That that would be my guess. That would be my guess as to why Diego Luna turns up in this like tiny, tiny, part. tiny appearance. Um, yeah, I think that people just. I think it's partially that people want to have like kind of given something to this person who might go on to do big things, right? So that you're there early and have a relationship. So you can say, yeah. So it's selfish. I think, or or maybe a favor to a friend. Who knows? Like right. I don't. Yeah. Well, that's what I was sort of saying. Like right. a favor to a to an agent, right? Or, or maybe like to her. That. I don't know. She seems very or maybe tied to her. Into, yeah. What did you think of Keanu Reeves in that role? Yeah, I thought he was fine. You know, I love Keanu, uh, and I was sort of excited when I knew he was in it, and I knew he had sort of like a kind of important supporting role. I didn't really think. You know, he has like a long speech about poop. Yes, he does. Which, about what happens where, where your poop goes. Right. You where if you like described, if you're like, here's the movie. And at one point in this movie, Keanu Reeves is going to give a long monologue about the inner workings of like plumbing. I would be like, here's all of my money. How <laughs> how soon can I see it? And then I, and then it's like a big nothing. It's, it was very underwhelming. I mean, I, I, I sort of, it was sort of fun to see him in the part. He has this really, you know, sort of like the, the mustache, the hair, the look is fun. I just I don't know. Again, the, the the dialogue of this movie, even in Keanu's uh, hands, is is not its strength. Yeah, and that said, even all of this said, uh, I do still. There's still snippets of this movie I enjoy immensely. I love the scene where they they run into um, a random guy who tries to trade gasoline for a limb, right? Uh, to eat, and there's this whole because I think in part it's there's almost no dialogue. Uh, that whole, the way that's shot, the way that whole scene goes down, I really enjoyed. I even enjoy the kind of strange scene that forever, for whatever reason has like birthed the image that was everywhere for this movie, which is when there's a sandstorm and, um, the two main characters kind oh, of, they're hide. under the blanket. Yeah. And it's another wordless scene. Yes. This movie is vastly improved by the characters not having to talk yes. and just standing there looking good. That's a lovely moment. Visually, it's an eye catching moment. Yeah. And, and you're right. They don't say anything, so that scene is a little bit better. I like the ending, too. I like the kind of, like, Eh, punchline of the ending for me. There's also, we didn't even mention this, but there's a little girl in this movie who's used as basically, like, a pawn for what plot there is. Yes. And she's not the strongest of child actors. No. Um, Yeah. I don't know. It is definitely, it was a disappointment for me, but it is kind of a guilty pleasure for me as well, I will say. It is not a guilty pleasure for me. I accept that. It is all bad batch for me. (laughs) 100%. 100%. I was uh, not happy. All not right. Happy. Well, that is The Bad Batch, and you can find it on Netflix. So we are talking cannibal movies on this episode. Uh, an enduring topic, let's say. it's It's been definitely in some kind of classics of exploitation and, mm-hmm. and horror. But I would also say it's kind of um, cannibalism is totally hot right now. It's been a trend. Someone noted at last year's can that there were five films with cannibalism wow. themes uh, including neon demon mm-hmm. which we've talked about on an episode before mm-hmm. slack bay which i mentioned which is newly added to netflix raw which was also newly added to netflix and we can come back to later in this episode uh and then all of the kind of like uh zombie related ones you know train to busan uh, but girl, the girl with all the gifts, a, yeah, a film like that, that you've movie. talked about a yeah. lot before, uh, on TV, there's Santa Clarita diet, right? It's, uh, it's kind of been, a. The cannibals are up. hot right now. I think it's a handy metaphor. 
it's like for anything for anything. it's a lot of things it's interesting to me that uh at can apparently the producer of slack bay was talking about it as this income gap metaphor the mm. haves and have nots mm-hmm. which definitely i think i've seen it used and i think one of my picks includes uses it that way uses it as a metaphor for that but it's also i think a handy metaphor for like appetites or desire run wild right. or other things yes that certainly applies to one of my picks for sure yeah. and it's also just like it's still such a lingering taboo it's a taboo right that's what i would say is that you know we we as a society are exposed to so much horror not just fictional non-fictional horror these days that it can be tough to shock people and uh, the idea of eating people is still shocking Thankfully, yes. Thankfully, we've not still, normalized eating. We people. haven't normalized eating yes. people yet, so it is still a shocking thing. Yes, and so I think you're right. I think that that might be part of it, and also that I mean that we, we these things happen in waves. You know, like there's a wave of vampire movies, there's a wave of uh, zombie movies, there's a wave. Of, you know, like so it could just be the cannibals' turn. Yeah, and in five years there'll be no cannibal movies, and they'll be on to the next thing. And then in 25 years, the people are like, you know, we haven't seen in a while, cannibal movies. And then they'll be back again. Sure. Well, cannibals, having a moment right now. Yes. But uh, my first pick is actually not from right now. Oh. It is from 1989. Mm. It is... A great year for people eating. Uh, it must be. Every year is a good year for people eating, apparently. Uh, it's Brian Usna's directorial debut, Society, which is now streaming on Amazon, starring Baywatch's own Billy Warlock as uh, a Beverly Hills high school kid whose seemingly idyllic life is disrupted by this underlying feeling that he doesn't really belong. And yeah, sure, same as all of us. Uh, welcome to being a teenager, or for that matter, welcome to being a human being. Yes, Except no, not in Bill Whitney's case. In Bill Whitney's case, he's right. There is something very strange and disturbing going on with his family and with their powerful, wealthy friends. What is so epic, and I think what makes society work so well and be so kind of like bitingly funny as well as disturbing, is that it has the same slightly cheeseball look and feel of any other 80s teen movie. Uh, Bill's girlfriend is this blonde cheerleader with fluffy hair who's very concerned with her own social standing and in school. Bill runs her student body president against a bowtie-wearing nerd. Uh, and yet Bill keeps getting signs that something is wrong, especially with his family, his like chipper, yuppie parents, and the sister that they seem to prefer. Uh, society kind of follows along the lines of a paranoid alien invasion thriller, um, combined with this touch of like, maybe the problem is me, uh, delusional possibility. Uh, except in this case, there is no invading force. Uh, in the last half hour, Bill finds out not only that he's, he's been right, that something is wrong, but that the scary truth has been there all along. And he finds out in the most spectacularly disgusting phantasmagoria <laughs> of body horror effects imaginable. Really just like a kind of amazing last half hour. Uh, in which it turns out that the high society his family is a part of literally feasts off those with lower social standing. Delicious. Sucking nutrients out of them <laughs> in these grotesque semi-sexual orgies. Wow. In, in which their bodies there. warp and blend together mm. in something that would really make David Cronenberg proud. Um, the rich really are different from you and me, Matt. Okay. Turns out. Um, and the effects were done by Joji Tani, a.k.a. Screaming Mad George. Uh, and they are practical effects. And in that way of practical effects, they hold up horrifyingly well. And it's in part because they don't try and 
mimic anything sensical. They are like this total nightmare. All of the imagery that in that sequence uh, is a total nightmare, including someone reaching a hand up through someone's, like what's implied to be their anus, through their body and up through their mouth. <laughs> And sticking, definitely going to be the the uh, most explicit episode. Yes, at, on iTunes. Like, fingers out of their mouth, like they turn them into turn someone into this like flesh sock. <laughs> uh, it's really it's really something that I had trouble getting out of my head. Um, but it's also incredibly imaginatively, <laughs> impressively disgusting. Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. and it's it's um, you know metaphor here, pretty clear, feasting on the poor. Uh, rich, uh, this whole separate breed. You have to, you have to be born that way. You can't just, you can't just get by sucking, you know, nutrients out of someone like they're uh, some delicious piece of fruit you can kind of turn into just skin. Uh, but yeah, I, if you want some imagery, you will never ever be able to forget, <laughs> no matter how much you try. Yeah, I would suggest Society on Amazon. It's a, uh, it's as much a dark comedy as it is horror. Uh, and it's really something else. Wow. Well, I always wondered how many episodes it would take for us to use the phrase flesh sock on the air. That's 148. But we made it. I'm glad. Congratulations. Thank you. We finally reached that plateau. I'm very proud. Yes, you should be. <clears throat> well, my first pick, you know, it's funny. My first pick is kind of a, is a really a, a, a dark comedy as well. Uh, there's something, I guess, maybe because it is such a taboo. That there is something to be... It has to like relieve the pressure, the tension a little bit. Yes, perhaps, perhaps. So my first pick is a... It's a strange but oddly satisfying period cannibalism comedy called Ravenous from 1999. It was directed by Antonia Bird, but she was actually... And I did not know this until this week. She was actually a last-minute replacement for the original director, uh, Milko Manchevsky, was fired a few weeks into production... And the film does have this vibe of not quite knowing what it is, but it sort of works. It's so weird and strange and unexpected in the turns that it takes that these things that probably should be flaws in some ways makes it very endearing. And the only thing I could think to compare it to would be, well, it's not modern day anymore because this movie is almost 20 years old, but sort of the an update of a Roger Corman Poe movie because mm. you have these great actors in period costumes. There's some grisly kind of bloody horror. Some of it doesn't look all that convincing. And then there is this real sort of very dark sense of humor, too. Uh, the film is set in the 1840s. You have this army officer played by Guy Pierce. He is punished for his cowardice in this uh, this battle and I think the Mexican-American War. And as punishment, he is set to this remote fort and he meets this motley crew of characters who I think are, are you're supposed to want to see eaten, which is sort of part of the fun, <laughs> is some of them are very unlikable. Uh, you have Jeffrey Jones, Neil McDonough, David Arquette. The movie almost wants you to like be excited <laughs> when David Arquette gets eaten, spoiler alert. And Jeremy Davies as well. This guy wanders into the fort. He claims that his wagon train was, I don't know, taken captive by cannibals. He's the only survivor, but it is a trap, of course. Uh, and he brings all of these people. It's uh, Robert Kyle Carlyle is the uh, is the guy here who brings all these uh, members of the fort back for this delicious, delicious trap. Uh, now, 
part of what makes this movie special, I would say. Have you seen Ravenous? It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. See, I don't think I'd ever seen the whole thing. I'd seen it on cable and such, but I don't think I'd ever seen the whole thing until yesterday. And what makes this movie magical is that there is like a magical element to it. It's not just about eating man meat. There is this idea in the film. We learn this legend of the Wendigo. The Wendigo. This creature or this idea that eating man makes you like uh like almost like wolverine like it gives you superpowers and you could heal injuries you can like be almost dead but if you eat a person you're suddenly like magically healed and i i I just thought this was the greatest thing i'd ever seen in my life it's just so (laughs) silly and you know it's like it's not just that eating uh human flesh is is a taboo it's unholy and i also liked it because i feel like we should apply this theory to all animals so like when i eat a cheeseburger and afterwards i'm like really like sluggish it's not because of the fat and the sodium or whatever. It's because I have absorbed the essence of this cow. Cows are very sluggish and they're probably very sweaty. I don't know. I don't know. know why you're you're being so harsh on cows. I'm very anti-cow. Uh but 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 I just like this idea that like you absorb the essence of something. You when are you what eat you it. eat. You are what you eat is like the most literal, ridiculous version of you, that. You just like suck someone's essence and you're right. so if stronger I eat, for right. it. Right. So if I had some baby back ribs, that explains why afterwards I like to roll around in mud, that kind of thing. Yeah, but you like to do that anyway. I know, but I'm just trying to find an excuse, okay? I, I appreciate that. Uh, the film, it has this really kind of a dry, dark sense of humor. It's got this big score. It has people like... Biting into human flesh and then like getting into fights. The fights are, I think, the the highlight really because people can't necessarily hurt themselves, hurt each other, right? Because they're like, well, they're like Wolverine. It's like it's like if Wolverine instead of being a mutant, the reason he was strong was he ate people. (laughs) It's so silly. Anyway, I like I said, I had seen like bits and pieces of this on HBO and and cable through the years, but I don't think I'd ever seen the whole thing. It is a hoot. It is really funny, even though no one is pl- everyone's playing it very straight, but it's just so like goofy, like this notion of cannibals are like superpower people. I just thought it was amazing, and I'm really glad I watched it. I had a fabulous time. I recommend it. Ravenous. It is available right now on Netflix. It's worth. We might have out. fought over who got to talk about this yeah, movie. Yeah, I, I, I do enjoy that movie, oh, um, but great. I also enjoy my next movie, which is not a dark comedy, though. I would say it has a unique sensibility all of its own. This would be Claire Denis's 2001 film Trouble Every Day, which is streaming on Amazon. Uh, And it's about how it's about two couples and it's about how two halves of each couple find themselves gripped by this urge to consume human flesh, uh, as you do. But it's a movie that puts the cannibalistic urge right up next to desire, sexual desire, in this way that is impossibly memorable, in part because of how beautifully and disturbingly certain tableaus are set up here. Um, So one of the couples is uh, the Browns, uh, Shane Brown, a doctor played by Vincent Gallo. And one of his, like, I think, kind of defining roles, uh, who's just been married to June, played by Trisha Vesey, this kind of delicate seeming young woman uh, who we see in certain scenes. She's like a bite mark on her arm. Uh, and there's a part where she has like a kind of wound on her lip that suggests that her new husband uh, maybe doesn't always have the best control. 
They're headed to Paris, where Leo, played by uh, Alex Descartes, has been run- laying low with his wife, Corey, played by uh, Beatrice Dahl, in one of her most memorable roles. Uh, she's just like this feral creature. It's kind of amazing. And he keeps her locked in the house because when she roams free, she has this tendency to seduce random men and then kill them in spectacularly gross ways. Uh, Shane has passed the trip off as a honeymoon, uh, but what he really wants is to see Corey again. Uh, there's like some time in the past he and Leo worked together and he became obsessed with Corey. Uh, and there is this suggestion in the film, which is like kind of very elliptical and never fills in all of the information uh, that Shane and Corey are infected in some way, or maybe that these urges were released as part of an experiment, but maybe they're not, you know, the movie uses this cannibalistic urge, one that, Corey wants to indulge in and that Shane keeps trying to fight with like pills and willpower and withholding himself from his bewildered wife um, as this kind of metaphor for, for sexual dissatisfaction for this kind of unfulfilled sexual need, whether it's problems with fidelity and monogamy or whether it's a search for some experience that, uh, that your partner can't fulfill. Like both of these characters are, like, and I think, like, one of the things that makes this movie so kind of sad, there's this real element of, like, pain running through it that beyond the pain inflicted on other people, is that these are both, like, loving relationships in which one partner feels uh, still unsatisfied, you know? Um, like, Shane, having having married someone, arranges for a way to go see this woman from his past that he was obsessed with. And uh, Corey has is like has these like scenes that are very tender with her husband and then goes off and has these like very disturbing sequences of like luring in men whose tongue she rips out um you know i i think that this film like the bad batch actually goes wordless for long stretches and it does not have bad performances and it has some remarkably expressive ones and it also leans heavily on the music of the tinder sticks. Um, but I think that there's something about, about it that's like so haunting because it does seem to express without setting up a direct metaphor, this like terrible dread of feeling that, you know, uh, these characters having these sexual desires that don't, that can't be kind of like crammed down into this relationship that they've chosen to have. Um, And I think that's maybe simplifying it a little, but it is like a really haunting, troubling, beautiful movie. And uh, I'm a big fan of Claire Denis, but I think this one is one of my favorites of hers. It's Trouble Every Day, and it is on Amazon. All right. My second pick probably doesn't get classified as a cannibalism movie in the same way some of the other podcasts, uh, some of the other movies, excuse me, we've talked about. But, I mean, it might be, or it might have, the most famous movie cannibal of all time. And that would be Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter, one of the main characters of The Silence of the Lambs, the 1991 classic from the late, great Jonathan Demme. Uh, You have Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins in the role that won him an Oscar. He is incarcerated at the beginning of the film because of past crimes, and he becomes a key source of information for Clarice, the FBI trainee played by Jodie Foster, who's assigned to the case of another serial killer named Buffalo Bill. And, you know, it's funny to take a look at some of Silence of the Lambs after watching Ravenous and sort of applying Mm -hmm. the mythology of, like, Wendigo superhero flesh eaters, where... 
you know, they don't really make anything of Hannibal Lecter, like, gaining powers from eating flesh. But he's pretty but powerful. He, guy. Yes, that's sort of my point, is that there is something here. There is this idea that he is sort of, like, superhuman, his intellect, his, even his, like, refinement, you know? Right, and well, that, this is, I'd say, even more so in the follow-ups. He becomes, yes, like... in Hannibal. He's in this, he be, he almost is, like, a superhero. He's like Batman. Yeah. Uh, he is. He's like Batman. If Batman, like, act, I mean, he's, I mean, Batman is a is a vampiric character, so it just sort of takes it to that place, basically. Um, so what I'm saying is that maybe the Silence of the Lambs is actually a ravenous. I can't tell if it would be a prequel or a sequel. It happened before, but it's set afterwards. I, yeah, I thought you were gonna go with maybe Batman eats people, but that's also good. That would be an interesting place for the next. I'd like to see Ben Affleck's Batman doing that. I'm not saying I'd be opposed to it. I mean, that would explain why he's so sad. <laughs> it's really hard it's really hard being Batman why did you say that name yeah, and then he'd eaten Martha. You okay, see, okay, that's they realized yeah, that yeah, they'd yeah. eaten yeah. Martha. Anyway, uh, one of the things that is so like brilliant about Sounds of the Lambs, and I feel like as like as the years go by, it kind of only gets more meaningful, is how you know, it's a movie about these over-the-top serial killers, but it really is so much from the Jodie Foster character's perspective and being a woman in this very male-dominated world. Just the way her character is introduced at the FBI training facility, how she's framed in the movie, and you look at all the shots where she's, like, dwarfed by these men who are not necessarily, you know, they're the good guys, they're the FBI, but they loom over her, and she just seems, you know, so much smaller and so, you know, like the cannibalism of, of Hannibal Lecter, the, 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 the stuff that Buffalo Bill does, it almost seems like it's this continuum. It's like this ex- they're the extreme, but that there is this all that, that, that it represents like the most extreme expression of this sort of aggression or this threat that's sort of ever present in her world. He also, uh, Hannibal Lecter sees her more clearly and understands her situation more clearly than certainly any of her coworkers. That is that is true as well. That's right. So. Yeah, and I I have to, of course, mention the, I I think it, I mean, maybe there's a more famous line, but I was, I couldn't think of one, Uh, any, a more famous cannibal line in the history of cannibal movies than, I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. That's pretty good. It doesn't get much better than that. If you want to hear more about Sounds of the Lambs and Michael Mann's Manhunter, which is, of course, like a uh, prequel, sort of, uh, and the history of Hannibal Lecter on screen, we did a whole episode on that way back on Filmspotting SVU number 65, which you can find on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. And Silence of the Lambs is currently available on Hulu. All right. Let's talk about some new movies currently in theaters before we get to Behind the Eight Ball. I think we can't let it slip away without discussing Blade Runner 2049. Uh, there's certainly a lot to talk about. It if is, we're allowed. <laughs> if we're allowed now. Well, the film is, by the time you're listening to it, this, the film is now in release. So yes. I think we'll be discussing some specifics. If you want to remain totally unspoiled, you can fast forward, I don't know, five minutes or so. Um, and then we're going to talk about uh, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman very briefly, which is opening in theaters this coming weekend. And Allison and I have both seen. So let's talk about Blade Runner 49. Here comes some spoilers, potentially, at a certain point. But uh, yeah, Allison, did you enjoy Blade Runner 2049? An exquisitely beautiful movie Mm -hmm. that I think just felt so empty inside to me. Yeah, I I was really disappointed by this because I just felt like... 
I mean, in in ways, you know, we talked about in Blade Runner, or in, in we talked about in Bad Batch that like the world is the most in, like interesting part of the movie, mm-hmm. and I felt that way so strongly with this, where I just, I felt like all of the characters kind of felt like like these, I don't know, like barely sketched in ways to find your way through this story, and the world, I love like the futuristic world of like the the LA of Blade Runner, like it, and I loved getting to see more of it in this movie, especially in a movie as thoughtfully and carefully art directed as this one is, but I just I I was so impatient with Aww. all of the actual characters on screen. Um, you having written a piece about how you've never loved the original Blade Runner I and won the love of the internet with that, of course. Mm-hmm, of um, course. You were a fan of this one. I, I like this movie a lot better than the original one. And having just, I haven't, I've only seen Blade Runner 2049 once. I would love to have the time to see it again. It's a long movie. But having like then rewatched the original Blade Runner, like my opinion of that movie, like it's probably like if I made a list of movies I want to love but don't, like it would definitely be like number one on the list because I just, I just don't I admire it I enjoy looking at it but it just leaves me so it it, it leaves me the way that this movie left you I guess it just that movie leaves me so cold and this movie I just loved how you know as you said thoughtfully art directed it's such a beautiful movie I was I just I loved exploring this world with Ryan Gosling his character Kay Kay and you know like all these interesting little characters all the people that we meet uh, love the the replicant sort of bodyguard of Jared Leto's character, who's the sort of modern day uh, uh, replicant creator. Who I didn't love him so much. I thought he was sort of the weak. The no, weak link. he's definitely the weak link. Uh, but I thought uh, I thought Sylvia Hoax as Love was amazing. I thought mm. she was fast. Like just her presence was so striking and interesting. Like give her her own movie as this character. I would totally watch that character doing just like working in that office like she's got stories to tell working for jared leto's character for sure and uh yeah i just you know and 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 you know it's funny because i'm not a huge fan of harrison ford in the original movie like i feel like he's like not very good in the original blade runner he's kind of underwhelming i don't really think he knew how to play that character um and here I was like blown away by how good he is in this movie. I was like, oh my God, he's acting. Like I just figured he was going to show up and be like, I get off my replicant, you know, but he gives a performance here. He's not in a ton of the movie. It takes a long time for him to show up. But when he shows up, he's like, I thought he was really good. Like I actually got caught up in his story in a way I never was caught up in the Deckard story Back in the back in the day in the old Blade Runner where, you know, the whole question of is he a replicant, is he not? I never really cared that much because the character wasn't that interesting to me. I found myself a lot more interested this time about that question alone. I just see I didn't care about you that didn't care at about all. <laughs> I just I yeah, I, I kept waiting for I don't know, especially like Gosling is playing, I think, a variation on a type of character he's played like recently a lot, uh, especially in like uh, Nicholas uh, Winding Refn movies and yeah. I'd say a bit of Derek C. of France movies as well. This kind of like yeah. sad-eyed like kind of emblem of romantic masculinity. This kind of like uh, just like stands kind of like in the rain looking droopy a lot. And I just But like, he looks so good looking he droopy. He does look good but I feel that like... That coat. I just, didn't you want to wear that sure, coat but forever? He's just so he's like almost catatonic in this movie. Oh I, I didn't just, think like, so at all. I found him so kind of tiresome. It's funny because I wasn't you're right he does do those movies. I was just thinking of him in like La La Land and how completely different he is here and just I, I loved watching him in this world because you know here's the big spoiler that they 
is literally in the first scene of the movie that they didn't want anyone to discuss is that as you know like instead of being like is he a replicant is he not a replicant in this movie they're like he's a replicant right and so you get to sort of see the world through this character's eyes and um i, I thought it, i thought he did a great job because he has to be sort of so kind of he is sort of subdued and then over the course of the movie he learns these things and it like opens him up in this fascinating i thought it was fascinating to watch his journey i just i wanted more of the actual the experience of being a replicant in a way that i just felt like this movie didn't give me much aside i mean from the scenes with uh ana de armas who's uh, I, loved, uh, I loved all that stuff uh, as i mean i think those are joy. the most interesting ones as joy who is like this uh, this is another supposed spoiler right though it's who her character is she's an ai program like a right. basically companion program she's siri with yes. a body right and that it's uh, like the computer from her with the body right a, a, like or a hologram right. a holographic projection and, body and she's like the only company that he has in his private life right uh, and there is something about that. And I wanted so much more of like what's kind of hinted at there where he is a replicant and this new model replicant that's like more obedient, uh, right. you know, kind of created to fix the problems of the last ones who kept running away because they were being used as like slave labor for extremely dangerous jobs. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and so, so, but so he understands that he is kind of like his questions of his free will are, are, are up in the air right and yet he his only companion is this kind of fragment of a personality who also yeah. does not have free will yeah. and like the bits in which they deal with that that they're almost like he is kind of a shell of a full person and then she is like even more so mm -hmm. are by far the most interesting part of the movie for me and i wish that it explored more of that but i felt like instead it kind of uses it like uses it again for like these like very beautiful visuals right. that just didn't feel very kind of like meaningful to me beyond their effect mm -hmm. and like the gorgeous stills. But before, okay, we should wrap this up and yes. move on. But like, I did want to ask you this. We've just mentioned two things that the studios asked us to keep quiet. Sure. Spoilers. Yes. And that are like basic facts of the movie. Correct. Like, uh, do you think that hurt Blade Runner in terms of marketing? I, I don't know. I, I think what hurt this movie is that Blade Runner is a cult film. Sure. That it was not a success in the box office when it came out. Right. This movie has already made more money than the original Blade Runner made in its entire theatrical run. And this movie didn't do all that great. So that tells you that, you know, it, the audience, I think, was kind of limited. I think... Blade Runner is a movie, you know, like I've seen it a lot of times, but I think Blade Runner is a movie that everyone knows, but I don't think a lot of people have actually seen and even less people really like. Right. Like it's not, it's got cult fandom. It doesn't have like beloved sci-fi right. fandom. It's not like remaking way. Ghostbusters, which right. by the way, didn't work out all that well for the for the financiers either but Ghostbusters is a movie that of that era that everyone has seen and loves and quotes like nobody like quotes Blade Runner nobody well, except for when someone might want to quote the the Roy Batty the tears speech. yeah you're right okay so <laughs> yeah uh, but you don't do that in your day-to-day -day life unless you're a not. weird person I really hope you don't but you also Actually, like I hope you do but like I mean like I it's, it's not a movie that people like dress up as for Halloween it's not a you know or a cosplay as like, very rarely it doesn't have action figures it doesn't have it doesn't have the same kind of place the in, cultural in footprint. popular fandom right right the, and culture that uh, Star Wars or something. Does. Right. Sure. To me, like, if I was in charge of a, of a studio saying, like, should we make another Blade Runner? I would be like, absolutely, but we can only spend X amount. And when I saw they spent $150 million on this, I mean, God bless them. The movie looks amazing. I'm so glad it exists. But, I, like, on what in what world does that make sense financially? It just seems like the movie was doomed to make, like, $75 bucks. Sure. I think, I do think that, And actually, become a cult film on video. I do think that the spoilers were actually, I think, part of the reason that they misunderstood the movie they were putting out. Or, mm. like, kind of, which is to say, like 
to to say that you can't say that the main character is a replicant, a fact that is revealed in the first scene in the movie, because right. that's a spoiler. Uh, I think that is to assume that people are so on board with your property already. They don't they care don't what it's about. They don't need to know what the movie is about. Yeah. But the thing is, like, that's not true for a lot of people. Mm. And I don't think that, like, letting people in to be like, here's why you would want to watch this movie, even if you are unfamiliar with this property. I do not think that's a bad thing. Yeah. And I think that, like... I don't like to make a really, really expensive cult movie like this, which is, I think, sort of what they, they've done. I mean, it's they kind of like wrote themselves into this corner. Yeah, I guess that's true. I just I don't know. I, I can't imagine people hearing what it was specifically about and going, oh, now I want to see it. I, I just I have a hard sure, time believing it would make like, a big difference. I, just, I feel like if you don't know what Blade Runner is, I just like, why would you, I guess, go see this? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk briefly about Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. Yes. Uh, this is uh, Angela Robinson's film about William Marston, who was the creator of Wonder Woman. Yes. So it's a it's a biopic that happens to have excellent timing. <laughs> Fabulous timing. Um, I had not known much about this story. I had I'd known a little bit. I had not known about the fact that this uh, Marston had this polyamorous relationship right. uh, with these two women. Uh, and that is definitely the focus of this movie. And I thought that that seeing that kind of explored it, with the sheen of like any other glossy biopic was fascinating to me. Yeah. Uh, though that also got frustrating after a while. Yeah. I, to me, that was kind of the, one of the interesting things about it was that it looks like a very typical biopic about like literally like this healthy and happy three-way polyamorous long-term relationship with mild uh kink explorations into kink very mild uh i kind the reason that i liked that watching it just as an observer was i felt like i think part of what angela robinson was doing with with this movie was to say that these people are normal people that, that we're not supposed to look at them as strange or weird or like she didn't like you know like the paul verhoven version of this story would be a lot different and that you can say, well, the the sex scenes or the way that they're depicted, it can be quote unquote boring. But I felt like that was sort of the point in a way. Like she wanted to, she didn't want to sensationalize these people. She wanted to treat them like, you know, healthy, normal, good people. Like, I, and treat it the way you would any other biopic as if to not like stigmatize it in any way. So yeah, I thought I that was that. sort of interesting. Yeah, that it is treated like a biographical love story. Exactly. Like, and, yeah. No different than sure. any other heterosexual biographical love story. Right. But then it does kind of have that like that bit of like frustrating inertness of any biopic where you're Absolutely. kind of like that's the sort of that's the <sighs> flip that's side that's a problem. Of it, where you're like this is there's a little bit of lifelessness to it. Uh, these characters always seem to kind of like you know be like wearing full faces of makeup and always like everything looks really nice and and time starts to jump very you know like i lot. think the, yeah the, the most interesting thing about the movie is not anything to do with wonder woman so if which is like left towards the end yes. also yeah the most interesting stuff is that i mean professor marston before he created wonder woman like was like a psycho a uh, psychology professor and helped create the lie detector and so there are these scenes where they're testing the lie detector which are kind of sexy and interesting and it like ties into and, the idea of the lasso the kind of yes like, the yes. golden lasso of truth where you're tied up in this thing or you're you're hooked up in it and you have to tell the truth or it's gonna the the needle's gonna jump and like that stuff and the the early stages of their relationship are a lot more interesting than they were a happy right domesticity couple. domesticity right exactly um and then the stuff with wonder woman i found kind of i don't know a little underwhelming it's more interesting to see how all of that stuff was seeded in their lives than it is to have the guy actually writing it and there's this whole frame story that 
I don't think actually you need and it's doesn't very, make any sense. It's very biopic yeah. and it's it is unnecessary. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I liked it. Overall, I thought it was a good film and uh, good performances. Rebecca Hall is awesome in it. She is very good in it. Uh, I also, I just liked, I would say this is a... Uh, you can really feel that there is a female director in this movie. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is something, I, I think that having kind of like a female gaze approach to it really makes a big difference in this mm-hmm. case, because I think that there is a, a male gazy version of a story about a guy who, who ends up in a relationship with two women. That, no good. <laughs> There's a problem. Would probably not focus so much on the women. No. Yeah. That's fair. All right, well, let's get to Behind the Eight Ball, where we wrap things up on the show by running down some new releases on streaming. Some listener recommendations that you wonderful people have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And then finally, one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Allison, who's going first this time? I'm going to go first. All right, well, let's start with three new releases on streaming. Okay, first up, new to Netflix is The Ornithologist. That's uh, Joao Pedro Rodriguez's award-winning psychosexual queer biblical allegory about a man whose trip studying birds in northern Portugal takes some very strange turns. Uh, It's a movie I missed on the festival circuit and I'm really looking forward to catching up with. I've heard it is very, like, it is very uh, unusual, but uh, very compelling. New to Netflix as well is April and the Extraordinary World. It's one of a bunch of G-Kids releases added to the streaming service recently. Uh, G-Kids does a lot of animated film releases, especially a lot of the international animated films, which is the case with this one, a French-Belgian production that is set in an alternate steampunk Europe uh, with a female scientist lead, a talking cat, houses that transform into rockets and all kinds of other wonders. It's it's pretty delightful. That's on Netflix. And to Sundance Now is Hong Kong Trilogy. This is a docu-fiction film directed by the legendary cinematographer Christopher Doyle. Uh, and he looks at three generations in Hong Kong, the city he has photographed so famously in multiple Wong Kar Wai films. Uh, The first looks at children in an elementary school. The second looks at adults involved in the city's umbrella revolution. And the third looks at senior citizens doing some speed dating. And that is on Sundance Now. How about two listener recommendations? So first up, we've got a recommendation from Jennifer, who actually sent us in a few horror recommendations from Sh- on Shudder. Unfortunately, they're no longer streaming on Shudder, but one of them is streaming on Netflix. So we will read that one. Uh, Jennifer writes, I'm a huge for- horror fangirl. And she recommends Baskin, a Turkish sort of zombie occult WTF torture film. A group of police officers investigate something and bad things happen. Sometimes hard to follow, but the visuals are stunning. Reminds me a little of Kill List. Thoroughly enjoyed this one. And hey, horror from Turkey. That's novel. Uh, So that is Baskin, and that is streaming on Netflix. Thank you for that, Jennifer. And second, we have one from Justin in Toronto who writes, I wanted to spread my love for Line of Duty, which has its first three glorious BBC short seasons on Netflix in Canada, at least. Um, Here in the U.S., it's on Hulu. Line of Duty is the best police procedural of all time. I don't say that lightly. I am a 45-year-old man and well-traveled connoisseur of cop dramas on both sides of the Atlantic and around the world. Yet Jed uh, Mercurio's over-the-top saga of the team from AC-12 
Anti-Corruption Unit 12, a.k.a. Internal Affairs, sets a new standard for outrageously fun, self-righteous, oh-no-they-didn't episode climaxes and turn-on-a-dime plot machinations. It's basically a three-hander with the hotshot DS Steve Arnott, the dedicated DC Kate Fleming, and... uh, Everyone wishes, and there, everyone wishes they had a boss like him. Superintendent Ted Hastings, played with devata- devastating pathos and Irish charm by Adrian Dunbar. Each six episode season follows a single investigation into police misconduct that leads from a lower level copper to a more sinister conspiracy at the top. The pace is relentless and feels more like a Hong Kong cop noir than Agatha Christie or Inspector Morse. I defy anyone to dislike it. Season four has already aired in the UK and stars an electrifying Tandy Newton as a senior investigator who slowly unravels under the anti-corruption microscope, hoping it comes to Netflix soon as I'm dying to rewatch Justin in Toronto. You have totally sold me on this. That was an excellent recommendation. It's electrifying. Thank you. All right. And how about one film chosen finally by number from your my list on Netflix? You gave me number 15. Mm. Number 15 is something I actually deleted because I've already watched. Oh. It is American Vandal. This would be the Dan Perot and Tony Ascenda original Netflix series. Oh, right. That is a kind of a mockumentary in the style of Making a Murder or Right, 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 right. I heard about this. And it surrounds... A high school prank yes. in which someone draws uh, penises yes. on various faculty cars yes. and is expelled. The, right. the class clown is expelled for this. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the media team in school starts this documentary to look into whether or not he did it. Ah. And it's actually pretty good. How many episodes Eight is it? episodes. Okay. It goes half down hour pretty or easily. Hour? I think they're all around the half hour, maybe 45 minute mark. Okay. Um, but they do, it is uh, both like a very great look at true crime conventions in the kind of like new resurgence of true crimes, Mm -hmm. especially the kind of like questioning the transparency with regard to journalistic practices and people putting themselves in the story. And -hmm. then it's also just like a pretty good story about high school and like high school teenage boys, like, and about how they behave. So uh, I was actually pretty impressed by it. It's it's worth a look. It's surprising. Uh, It's American Vandal. And that is on Netflix. Matt, yes. are you ready? Yes. Well, then give me three new releases. All right. <clears throat> First up, available on Netflix just a few weeks after its 20th anniversary is Boogie Nights. I can't believe this movie is 20 years old. <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson's film about the rise and fall of a uniquely gifted porn star named Dirk Diggler played by a young and shockingly great Mark Wahlberg. I recently saw this movie for the first time in many years and for the first time ever, on the big screen in 35 millimeter, and it holds up very well. Uh, the performances, the writing, the technical camera work, just one of the all-time great movies of my uh, uh, adulthood. I love uh, this movie. If you've never seen it, Boogie Nights on Netflix. Uh, next up on 2B TV is Infernal Affairs, the terrific Hong Kong action thriller that inspired The Departed. In Martin Scorsese's version, it's about, uh, you know, it's the two moles, right? You got the undercover cop hiding in the gang and the gangster who has managed to infiltrate the upper echelon of law enforcement. Scorsese's cast was great, but Infernal Affairs is not too shabby either. Tony Lung plays the undercover cop. Andy Lau is the mole among the cops. You also have Anthony Wong in an important supporting role. Uh, If you're a fan of The Departed, you should totally check it out. Even If you haven't seen The Departed, check it out. uh, It's really great. I can't vouch for the sequels. I've never seen either of the sequels. 
I have. I don't remember them very well. I feel like I, yes. Well, one is like a prequel. One is a prequel. Scene. I feel I like know. I've seen the sequel and it's see the, Just see this one. Infernal Affairs, available on Tubi TV. And finally, available on Netflix, I have Before Midnight, the third film in Richard Linklater, Ethan Hawke, and Julie Delpy's decade-spanning chronicle of unlikely love between an American man and a French woman. They met on a train traveling through Europe and Before Sunrise. Nine years later, in Before Sunset, they reconnected in Paris. Now in Before Midnight, they are married with twin girls. After two of the most gloriously romantic movies ever made, comes a much more realistic look at relationships. I recently interviewed Richard Linklater for his new film, Last Flag Flying. The topic of a potential fourth film came up. I would definitely say he made it sound like it is conceivable. They, like, wait five years after the last movie to discuss whether they might make a new one. And he said they're, they're, they're getting close to discussing whether mm. there could be either a new movie or just some other project they could all do together. So we shall see. In the meantime, Before Midnight is available on Netflix. Okay, give me two listener recommendations. All right, I'm actually giving you two here from Dave in Charlotte, North Carolina, who gave us two recommendations together as a kind of double feature, so let's just use them both. Dave writes, I came across this Netflix pair, Netflix, totally by accident, and actually watched them both on back-to-back nights. Number one is actually the first two episodes titled True East of a new documentary series called The Confession Tapes. It deals with two Seattle teenagers accused in the horrifying triple murder of one boy's family. The police seize on the boys as suspects and hold them for questioning in a hotel room, but the teens flee to Canada because one of them is Canadian. Both are highly intelligent but are viewed as suspect because they read Nietzsche. Canadian police use questionable tactics to get them to confess. It's a fascinating true story. Number two is the 1959 film Compulsion, which is also currently streaming on Netflix. It's a classic film, but I had never seen it. It's based on the Leopold and Loeb murder case in Chicago. The two young men men are also highly intelligent and read Nietzsche, and police use questionable tactics to get a confession. Orson Welles comes on the scene late in the film as their defense lawyer and gives an amazing closing argument in the film that must last for 15 minutes. All four main actors are tremendous. Dean Stockwell and Bradley Dillman as the murderers and E.G. Marshall as the prosecutor, along with Wells as the defense attorney. It's a pretty amazing film. So that's Compulsion and The Confession Tapes, uh, both available on Netflix. Thank you, Dave in Charlotte, for those recommendations. Okay, give me one from your Netflix, my list. You gave me number eight, and number eight on my, 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 my list is Prohibition, a film by Ken Burns and Lynn Navis. Ken Burns' documentary traces the passage of the 18th Amendment and the social and legal effects of prohibiting alcohol and the repeal of prohibition. Uh, Ken Burns, I believe, has a new documentary series out right now Vietnam. On, on Vietnam. And so you know how this goes. You see, oh, someone has a new thing. And you look on Netflix and you go, oh, Prohibition. I never watched that one. Um, and so I added it uh, a little while ago. Uh, I haven't seen all of Ken Burns' work, but some of them are, are very good. If you're in the moon for his thing, he does a very good... His baseball documentary is incredible. That's my favorite. I also have heard many people mention to me recently that they fall asleep to Ken Burns, like it's soothing. I could see that. Yes. Totally. Totally. Well, maybe the next time I'm feeling a little insomniacal, I'll put on Prohibition on Netflix. We have three... Uh, very uh, appealing and very horrifying options for our listeners' choice 
review next time. It's Halloween season. It's October. It's the perfect time to do a horror movie. So we've got three horror movies to choose from here. I have the first one. It is Gerald's Game. This is a, a Netflix original. It's a Netflix uh, uh, original film, now on Netflix. I will read you. There's two different plot descriptions I found on Netflix. I'll read you both of them. Two for the price of one. Lingerie and handcuffs were meant to spice up their weekend getaway. Instead, they surfaced a wife's darkest fears. And now here's the other one. When her husband's sex game goes wrong, Jesse, handcuffed to a bed in a remote lake house, ooh, like the lake house, faces warped visitors, uh, excuse me, warped visions, dark secrets, and a dire choice. And it has Carla Gugino and Bruce Greenwood. It's directed by Mike Flanagan, who's a, a well-respected director of uh, little horror movies like Oculus and Hush and Ouija, Origin of Evil, which I never saw, but supposedly was good. Yeah, supposedly it was a vast improvement on the yes, original. Yes, it was supposedly the, the preferable Ouija film in the Ouija franchise. And we've heard good things about Gerald's Game. It played at Fantastic Fest. It got good reviews there, uh, supposedly does a good job adapting a Stephen King book that was supposedly unadaptable. Yes, one that obviously has its main character uh, pinned, unable right. to move for like this. And is mostly sort stretch. of a long I- internal monologue. Mm-hmm. And supposedly the movie does a nice job of figuring a way around that and supposedly has one scene in particular that is incredibly horrific and gruesome and terrifying. <laughs> I have no idea what it is, but everyone I talk I to... I have about, an idea what it is. Everyone I talk to uh, about this movie, just all they want to talk about is that, that there's a scene that freaked them out. Yes. So... So that's option one. Yeah. You... If, if you want to freak us out... <laughs> Uh, this would be a way to do it. Gerald's Game on Netflix. Option two is streaming on Shudder, which is, as always, a good place to look for all kinds of horror fare. It is Soul Station. If you were a fan of the Korean Zombies on a Train movie from the other year, Train to Busan. This is a animated prequel to that from the same director, uh, Yeon Sang-ho. Uh, he actually worked in animation before he made his live action uh, Train to Busan. So this is not uh, out of character. And uh, this, as as the title indicates, takes place in Seoul right around the time when the zombie outbreak that we see unfolding uh, on the train and across the country in Train to Busan is taking place. And like Train to Busan, this movie deals with a lot of kind of class and societal issues by way of showing its outbreak of the undead. In particular, it kind of focuses on these characters who are on the outskirts of society anyway. There's a, a runaway, there's a homeless man, and it really kind of like is maybe even bleaker in terms of that than Train to Busan, which, you know, you can always get away with when you, you're, you're working with animation. But if you liked everything that was going on in Train to Busan, this definitely continues those same sensibilities in animated form. So that is your second choice, and that is streaming on Shudder. Our third option is available on Netflix, and it was almost one of the movies we talked about on this show, because it is another movie involving cannibalism. Uh, And normally we would probably not want to do two cannibalism cannibalism movies on two different episodes back to back. But this movie has gotten such a great response, and I know I'm dying to see it. I haven't gotten to see it yet. I'm guessing you have seen it. I've seen it it multiple times, Multiple times, okay. Well, uh, so this would be a good excuse to see it. We're sort of uh, bending our own rules a little bit to put this on here as our third option. It is Raw. 
Uh, it is uh, we do the one, only one plot description this time. Forced to eat raw meat during a hazing ritual at her veterinary school, a young vegetarian develops an overpowering hunger for flesh in all of its forms. Uh, Allison, you have seen this movie multiple times. What yes. else do we need to know about it? I would say what's this is it would fall under the category, the kind of umbrella of horror, but it is just as much a coming of age story. Right. Not not as not a classical horror film. No. It has horror themes and it's about flesh eating. But it is like it is in some ways about freshman year of college. <laughs> and really, what is more terrifying than that? It's nightmarish. I can think of few experiences in my own life that were more nightmarish than the freshman year of college. So I am I expect to uh, relate to that film on a very deep and personal level. <laughs> All right. Well, that's option number three, Raw. And that is available on Netflix as well. Okay. Which of these horrifying movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? You tell us, send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll at the bottom of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, October 16th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at filmspottingsvu. And we'll also put it on Facebook at uh, facebook.com uh, slash filmspottingsvu. Please give us a like on there. Yes. We've, been trying to, we've got some discussion on there, too, which is great. Yes. Um, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which you can look for around Tuesday, October 24th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the horror movie review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer, and follow the show at FilmspottingSVU. That's where we announce announce that's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you and from us from you to us and from us to you for film spotting svu i'm matt singer and i'm allison wilmore thanks for listening <laughs>